This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. all over these United States and even up to Canada and now we're getting on the back half of this season I will say those of you who are expecting a 10 episode season will be in for a surprise because thanks to our great patron Casey Oliver he has extended this season by two additional episodes it'll be 12 episodes in total Uh, so we're not quite rounding the corner to the end but we are now on the back half and this week we are traveling back down south to the traditional southern kill billy and we're even going to mix in a little inbreeding and little deformities here we're going to west virginia for wrong turn from 2003 so the last movie we covered was just before dawn from 1981 so we have over a 20 year gap before we have more kill billy movies i'm sure there was one that popped up in there somewhere but you know for the record at least of note there's a giant gap between the last thing we're covering and this movie but uh the the song remains the same in many ways. We have a group of young people, in this case, all young, very beautiful people who get lost in the woods in West Virginia and run afoul of some deformed killbillies. You know, a lot of uh, implications of inbreeding and uh, other things. It's kind of a cross between deliverance and the hills have eyes and i am your host the maniacal minister of the occult the devil you know the original motherfucker the rev dan wilson and i am here with my beautiful people dreamboat annie i read in newsweek how economically depressed places are like breeding grounds for all kinds of apocalyptic visionaries order of the solar temple Church of the Lamb of God, the Shijon family, remember them? I remember the Church of the Lamb of God from Virginia. This is the order of, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but also joining us, the, the man of the hour, the Tower of Power, too sweet to be sour, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. Just get me to a motel room. Run me a very hot bath. And be prepared to provide me with a lot of orgasms. Hey! I don't know about all of that. (laughs) And rounded out the crew 
as they always do, the one, the only, the great Mooji. You cutting wise on me, son? I'll cut wise on your ass all day. So, prior familiarity on this one, of course, um, I'd seen this one a few times. This is, uh, it was a, a staple of the early 2000s when it came out. Don't think I saw it in the theater. I do believe this was a, a DVD viewing, but uh, definitely viewed it many times. Uh, same on the DVD viewings, although I did see this in the theater. I do remember going to see it. Um, I was a big fan of um, Elijah Dushku back in the day, as a young man would be. But yeah, this was one of those that uh, kind of came out in the um, the height of like, DVDs when you know you get like a shit ton of extras and everything on every single one of them and um and I owned as many as I could buy so yeah I've seen this movie probably like a dozen times uh this was only my second viewing uh if I'm remembering correctly uh I got this when it came out when I worked at movie gallery so I got it a day earlier than everyone else who wanted to get it on DVD but I believe that's the only previous time I'd seen it up to now. Uh, this is the first time I'm seeing it, uh, but I do remember this movie coming out uh, because much like Muji um, and Dan, I was also and still am a huge fan of Elijah Dushku, but still had not seen this movie. That was not my not my jam when it came out. I was over watching Bring It On on repeat at this point. So. <laughs> All right, well, before we dig on into how we got another Kill Billy movie 20 years after the trend came and went, and we go very deep into the slasher version of that in this one, let's talk about our musical guest from our wonderful sponsors over at Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions. This week, they are bringing us a band called VHS with their new album, Deep Gashes and Long Lashes. Canadian death metal horror fiends VHS trade in their machetes for black hats and trench coats with a more synth-driven approach, throbbing groove, and ominous melodies setting the perfect backdrop for a blood-soaked murder scene. Deep Gashes and Long Lashes is a tribute to the bizarrely beautiful Giallo films from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. VHS present an audible homage to the thrilling and bombastic music that accompanies the on-screen violence and beautiful set pieces, as well as a salute to the, to the gorgeous women that met a grisly end. Call it Jallo Death. Deep Gashes and Long Lashes feature guest vocals by Fiore of Fulci, Ricky of Golem of Gore, Alessio from Guinea Pig, and Il Bacchino of Tenebro. For fans of Acid Witch, and God damn it, am I a fan of Acid Witch. Uh, that's a band I just recently discovered. Check them the fuck out. Uh, Claudio Simonetti, Dario Argento, Ennio Morricone, Exhumed, Fabio Frizzi, Goblin, Lucio Ercoli, Lucio Fulci, Mario Bava, Massimo Dalamano, and Sergio Martino. Here is VHS with the kicking off track from this album. It's called I Want Your Eyeball off of Deep Gashes and Long Lashes. Started, starting off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims.
The Coroner's Report. So where the fuck does wrong turn come from? Well, you know, we've talked about this a few times. You can go back specifically to our Revenge of the Remake season, but even in the Slasher season and so many others, we talk many times, and even as we revisit it, it becomes more apparent. The early 2000s were a rich and fertile ground for a horror renaissance. And so the studios are jumping on all kinds of original properties. And that's kind of what we have here. The development for the film began in 2001 when it was announced that Summit Entertainment and New Market Group had teamed up to produce the movie Wrong Turn. They were going for a 70s style horror pick to be directed by Rob Schmidt. Of course, this was the time when Tarantino movies were all the rage. Uh, Grindhouse and the Robert Rodriguez stuff had come out as well. So, like, you know, the the whole 70s-style horror film was a buzzword as fuck in the early 2000s. And even, we're, we're going to look at a couple of those here in this season, even. But let's talk about Rob Schmidt, the director. He was... Most known for this film, but he also directed Crime and Punishment in Suburbia, and he also created a pilot called American Town for 20th Century Fox. He directed an episode of Masters of Horror on Showtime called Right to Die, which was actually a great fucking episode. Um, His thriller, The Alphabet Killer, which reunited him with Eliza Dushku in this movie, And Martin Donovan from the Masters of Horror episode and Michael Ironside from Crime and Punishment in Suburbia was picked up for international distribution by New Films International. And uh, so, you know, those are the main things he's done, but uh, a little bit more as well. And it was written by a dude named Alan McElroy, who wrote Spawn as well as Halloween 4. And uh, the movie was a co-production of Summit Entertainment and Constantine Films. And they brought in Stan Winston to do the creature effects. And he also served as a producer. Uh, They inked a deal with the Fox-based Regency Enterprises. And they were the co-financiers of the film. They also secured domestic distribution through Fox. Now, Fox reportedly had trouble securing an R rating due to the film's intense violence. Many of the TV spots for the film were refused approval. This is possibly one of the reasons why subsequent Wrong Turn movies went straight to video. But this one was released in the theaters. We'll talk more about that later on Numbers of the Beast. Let's talk about the music. The music, uh, there were two soundtracks actually released to this. You know, this was in the heyday where you got a metal soundtrack to the movie as well as a score. Ah, yes, the days of music from the movie as opposed to the movie soundtrack. There was all, that was, I remember one, Chris, I can't remember what movie it is, but I asked for the the CD, the music from the movie, um, and I definitely got the soundtrack, and it was a big disappointment. I was going to say, some misguided relative had to do that to one of us. I got your favorite video game, Fork Knife. (laughs) 
So the uh, the music from soundtrack had many popular bands of the day. We had uh, mainly like Queens of the Stone Age and Breaking Benjamin, but uh, there were some other bands, less uh, bands I'm not as familiar with, like Dead Man, King Black Acid, Granddaddy, The Bells, Jet Black Summer, DJ Swamp, and more. Uh, the score. <laughs> was actually done by Elia Simmerall. Uh, he'd worked on numerous projects across multiple genres, though arguably best known for his work in thriller and horror movies. Uh, he's collaborated with the likes of Wes Craven, John Frankenheimer, John Travolta, and Ernest Dickerson. The music is good and solid. I, you know, it's, I'll say it's kind of stocky, like, for a movie like this. Um, it's, you know, it's just a big, like, bombastic score. Um, there's, you know... There's a little bit of hillbilliness in the score, but not as much as you would think. It's like strings, and it's got like an action movie score in a lot of ways. Yeah, I thought the score itself was all right, but I thought a lot of the uh, the rock and or roll music, if there was anything that would kind of date this movie, it would be that. I thought it was just a bit stale. I agree with you, Grizz. Like the um, that's like one of my like main like complaints of like. As much as I love, like, you know, movies of this era, because, you know, obviously, I mean, late 90s to early 2000s, you know, it's like, you know, late teenage, early 20s, you know, time. So I love a lot of these movies, but I mean, we're going to, we cover a lot of movies in this era. We're going to run into a lot of them where they were just like, let's just play some, you know, some of this, like, you know, whatever you want to call it, rock music of the time. Yes, the new metal and... New metal is a good way to take me right out of a horror movie most of the time. Sometimes it adds to it. I'm not saying it always fucks it up, but very often, like, the choice of just, like, you know, doing something simpler would make it a lot scarier than the new metal. Unless you're in Ghost Ship and you're Gabriel Byrne getting pissed off at those goddamn teenagers and their mud vein. Um, yeah, I would actually consider this like post new metal shit almost. So this was like after like your corn and limp biscuits of the world and on into like the, I mean, you know, if they could have cut the balls off of new metal anymore, like, uh, I, you know, I'd say bands like Breaking Benjamin did that. If, you know, if you're a fan of them, that's great. But like, it's not. You know, it's, it's not my bag and, and definitely dates a horror movie. That being said, like you could say, compare like Hatchet, which has a fucking great soundtrack, um, which also dates it kind of to the time. But it's songs that I like kind of timeless, I would consider because I still listen to them like Hail Genocide by Guar. And this is the new shit by Marilyn Manson. And uh, that overkill song at the end, the old school, like, uh, you know, like, uh, there's, it, there's some that were, but like when you're picking top 40 rock, like this one seemed to be, yeah, I, I think it would be dating the film a bit, um, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> Let's talk about the cast. We had Desmond Harrington as Chris Flynn. He looked like if you tried to draw Chris Evans by memory or maybe Paul Walker, but uh, he was in the hole from 2001. And speaking of ghost ship, he was one of those kids with their mud vein that Gabriel Byrne was so fucking pissed at uh, from 2002, a year before this. 
And he also joined the cast of Dexter on Showtime in the third season as Detective Joey Quinn. Uh, he also portrayed Jack Bass, the uncle of Chuck Bass on the show Gossip Girl. Um, fine performance. Kind of a poorly written character, in my opinion. I think he he had, like, some virtue. Like, you know, he, he was a noble and honorable guy. He was, was heroic, but he made some real fucking stupid decisions. Um, he, he had a lot of fuck around in him. I, is what I kept saying. Like, fucking get to it, motherfucker. What are you doing? Uh, so, you know, he kind of deserved to die, but he didn't. Spoiler. Yeah, I guess I thought the performance was decent enough for how it was written. Uh, I guess a lot of that will be shared in final thoughts, but I don't know that this is really the kind of movie with the length of time they're given that they're going to flesh out a lot of backstory, a la deliverance or ritual or anything like that yeah i mean the character itself i agree like it has something in common with like almost all the characters in this movie is that um they're not so much characters <laughs> it's just kind of like people walking around in a movie like there is like hardly like barely any backstory for anybody but like he was fine um i don't know it's kind of weird it seems like one of those like weird you know early 90s or that era decisions of like, why don't we have one of the people like just in dress clothes? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's have one of the people uh, in dress clothes. Let's do it. You're forgetting that. And a really like, classic car too. But like during this time period from like the mid aughts to the early 2010s, that was, that was like part of fashion was like this weird, like business, looking like you have like a meeting at four, but meeting the boys for drinks at six 30, like with the, it was like inexplicable. Um, oh, it was explicable by Mac, uh, Maxim magazine told people to, to drink. That's that's yeah. They're like, look, wear business clothes all the time to look sharp. And there was like, all right, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't dress professionally. So then they'll think you have money, like you have a real job or something. Yeah. Maxim calls me to spend way too much money on a watch, but that's another story. <laughs> the chokehold Maxim had on young men in the in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, old Chrissy boy uh, was, he wasn't the stupidest of the group. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say about him. Like you guys said, there's. There's not a lot of depth to anybody here, so they're doing what, what they can with what they've got. That they are, and speaking of the only character that uh, was not a complete fucking idiot, was actually kind of a badass, that was Eliza Dushku as Jesse Berlingame, uh, of course the star of this vehicle and the face they put on all the posters and the DVD cover, etc., of course, best known for starring as Faith in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Uh, she also was in the Fox Supernatural drama True Calling, as well as the sci-fi series Dollhouse, which she was also a producer. She has been in various films, including True Lies, Bye Bye Love, Bring It On, Jay and Silent Bob Stride Back. The new guy on Broadway, Scribbler, Jane Wants a Boyfriend, Eloise, and more. She's also done voice work for numerous video games and animated films. Um, it is almost as if this film 
was just a vehicle for Eliza Dushku. Uh, she is definitely like the centerpiece of the film. She is the only one that has any smarts in the group. She's the only one that's like, all right, let's fucking go, you know? And they're like, why, why do we, you know? She's like, come the fuck on. Uh, but, um, but a badass in this movie, and like like by far the strongest performance and everything else. But like I said, I almost think it was it was set up that way. I'm gonna kind of disagree. I don't think anybody was that bad of an ass in this movie. I do think this obviously was a vehicle for her because I, she was probably one of the it girls. I'm gonna go ahead and guess she appeared in Maxim at some point. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Probably, you know, the the same one with the article that says keep your thumbs in your belt loops so you're, you know, hypnotizing the woman to look at your crotch all the time. Somebody actually told me that was a thing, but I didn't read Maxim. Anyway, yeah, um, I don't want to beat the dead horse, but I just don't think any one of these characters are very developed. I think this, all of these characters, everything is just happening to them and they're just running most of the time, so... I don't think we really get like what we saw in just before dawn where you see the character emerge and shove a hand down somebody's throat. It's more just let's get away. So I think it's more though that like whereas everybody else is a giant chicken shit, um like the scene that's coming to my head right now is when they're in the burning building and the only way out is to jump into a tree and they're all the uh, Chris is all hesitant and uh, the other girl is all hesitant and she's just like, "Would you guys fucking jump so I can go?" And she just like goes. And when they're like trying to get out of the house and the door is wide open and they're all just kind of fucking around and not fucking going, and she like takes off running. She's like, "Run, bitch!" And they're running up the hill and they're like, eh. "And she's like, fucking go." So it's. I guess it's not so much a badass, but she's like the only one who seems to give a shit about living um, and getting out of there. Um, so that's, I guess, why she comes across as like, uh, comparatively, she is the badass of the movie. Like compared to other movies, maybe not so much, not even like other roles she's played. But for this movie alone, um, as is tradition, she did not let herself look like a little bitch. Was just, she was the only one that made this, this decision. <laughs> All I can say is that she looked great. Hey, indeed. That was kind of what this whole cast was about, it seemed, uh, as we had Emmanuel Chiriqui as Carly Newman, Canadian actress best known for her role as Sloan on Entourage. She was also in the movie Snow Day. You don't mess with the Zohan. She was in The Mentalist, and she was Lana Lang recently on the Superman and Lois television series. And uh, she is the most fucking annoying character in this movie. Uh, normally, I like Emmanuel Streakley, but my God. Uh, yeah, she she deserved to die long before she did. Her voice made me want to impale her with the nearest object in this movie she was so fucking whiny but like good job because we've seen her in other things and it was clearly an act i guess what i could say is that she would be the most developed of all the characters because she hasn't started out that whiny but gets more progressively whiny and 
at some point she has to lose her shit. So I guess she had the most range in the film. Muji, the biggest entourage fan of us all, is not going to come to the defense of Sloan. <laughs> hey, man. I love Sloan. Love Sloan. Whole time watching Entourage, thought every time that they broke up, he was a moron. So, you know, if you need to get into that. But, I mean, you know, she's like, I mean, she's a fine actress. Like, there's just not not a lot, like, for her to do with this, you know? It's like, I feel like I don't want to, like, step on any of my final thoughts. But, like, I feel her character was, like, like all the rest of the characters. Not just, like, that they didn't develop, like, they, like, they couldn't make, like, a choice. So, here's, like, a... A choice you could have made in this movie was like, we've got Elijah Dushku, we've got Emmanuel Shariki. They're, you know, both, you know, you know, two of like the best looking young actresses of that era, you know, and we've got this like, you know, weird movie out in the woods. Like, you know, you could have made it like a little more pervy, I will say. And that would have been like a choice to make that like might put the characters like in situations that they kind of had to get out of more that would have you know, like giving them something like more to do, like made, you know, it's like the whole movie is just like, it's like they didn't want to make it like too kind of like dangerous or dirty. And they like, which is kind of what you have to do with this type of movie. And like her, I mean, her character was just the perfect thing of that. Like her, like she kind of like was sad, but didn't like fully break down. And then you know, like her death was not like super harrowing or anything like that. You know, she just kind of got got, you know, decent special effects. So like, it's weird. Like, despite being chased through the fucking woods by you know like crazy rednecks, like they didn't really go through that much shit. So like, I mean, that's why I think like you know I just don't have really strong opinions about a lot of like the performances because they just didn't have anything to do. <laughs> you know, like their uh. characters. There, you were just surprisingly quiet for someone I've heard you say lots of words about in the past. I know, I love her. Uh, what are you What are you talking about? There was nobody higher on like twenty five year old Muji's like you know list. That's what I'm saying. She's an all time. She's an all timer. She just don't have don't have much to do with this movie. All right. Then we had Jeremy Sisto with Scott Corby. Uh, he was like our intellectual guy. He was known for his roles as Billy Chenoweth in Six Feet Under. He was in Law and Order. He was in Suburgatory. Uh, he was in the movie Clueless in 1995 and the movie 13 in 2003, as well as the film Waitress from 2007. And uh, also meets... Meets an end. Um, he, I mean, he, he said a lot of words, so I guess he had a little more backstory than some of the others just because he spoke so much. Uh, then we had uh, Kevin Zegers as Evan Ross uh, and Lindy Booth as Francine Childs. Now you can go back to our 2002 Dawn of the Dead episode back on our Revenge of the Remakes season. On the archives at patreon.com slash OG scare. Just $1 a month gets you access to the full 15 season archive of the show. And you can learn more about these great characters' careers. But uh, <laughs> what is interesting is they play a couple in this film. 
And they also played a couple in Dawn of the Dead. However, in this film, of course, they both die in Dawn of the Dead. They actually survive to the end and die during the closing credits when everybody dies, which was a big early 2000s thing. So this is just a year prior, but uh, I guess they liked their chemistry because they paired them up again in wrong turn um you can also go back to that episode to find out what a fan i was and and still am of of lindy booth uh and so there's a funny fact just to me that like <laughs> they they died in this but then in dawn of the dead they survived but they died at the end and this they kind of died at the beginning they were kind of the first people outside of the, the the setup kills to get got and while that is odd and interesting it is not time for that so just like Hold on to that, and we'll be right back. Yeah, hang on to that. <laughs> we had uh, Julian Richings as Three Finger. This is a very famous character actor. He's been over 50 films, 20 TV shows. He's best known for playing Death on Supernatural on the CW. He was also in the Stephen King miniseries Kingdom Hospital. Uh, he was in the movie Being Julia, The Last Casino. He was in X-Men The Last Stand, and he played a vampire killer in the direct-to-DVD horror film The Last Sect. He was in the movie Shoot 'Em Up. He was in The Third Eye, Skinwalkers, and Saw 4. He continues to be active in short films and TV series, mostly in Canada. And uh, Three Finger, very creepy. All these guys said so the super effects work by Stan Winston. All of the... Uh, the mutant hillbillies were definitely disturbing looking. Um, they, they sort of gained more personality in the later films, but this is the initial thing that we're seeing. Uh, and then we had Gary Robbins as Sawtooth. He was discovered working as a bouncer in a bar and went on to act in his first film, Humongous. And uh, he's also a pro wrestler. I didn't know this. He had wrestled all over the world including for promotions across Canada and the GWF in Dallas, Texas, in the United States, as well as New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, this would have been in the early 90s. Uh, he teamed with Bill Eady as Demolition Hucks, and I do remember that in Global. Um, Bill Eady was called Axis the Demolisher, I think, because he couldn't actually call himself Demolition Axe. Uh, but he also went on to be a stuntman, stunt coordinator, voiceover artist, and bodyguard. And then we had Ted Clark as Old One-Eye. And those are hillbillies. And then other supporting actors, we had Yvonne Gaudry as Hallie Smith. Joel Harris as Rich Stoker. David Hubend as the trooper. The, there's a great fucking false finish cop kill there. That's one of the places this kind of deviates. From all of the goddamn Kill Billy movies we've seen where, like, the sheriff is in on it. In this case, the sheriff was actually trying to help, but he got the shining and got Scatman Carruthers the fuck out of him with an arrow. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then we had Rain Wayne Robson as the old snaggletooth old man who also, like, you kind of wonder, like, and, and that's another staple in these movies, the old man at the gas station is usually in on it. And in this case, like, I kind of thought he was up till the very end. Then he left. I was like, oh, maybe he's not. Maybe he just knows about it, you know? Like, it didn't seem like he was colluding with them. Yeah, I thought so, too. I'd forgotten the ending, you know, seeing it so many years ago. But when you see, he sees the truck, and he hauls ass in there and closes all the doors. So, 
I don't think he was in on it, but I think it was intimated that he knows what's up. Yeah, I think that that's like the beginning when he like, you know, says he's going to take like the secret, you know, road, you know, he like says he's not going to make it out. So, yeah, I think he's just I think he's just an asshole hillbilly. It's like you can drive that way if you want. I'm not going to stop you. But you're gonna die. Right on. And then rounding out the cast, we got James Downing as the trucker. Shooting dates and locations. Now, it was shot from Jew. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, from August 6th of 2002 to um, October the 11th of 2002, and not in West Virginia at all. It was shot in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Of all places. Well, that's odd. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. For real, though, West Virginia could have used the money. So Eliza Dusku apparently did all of her own stunts, or at least a lot of them, for this movie. Um, she's kind of known for that. And, uh, you know, took some pretty gnarly falls. So, hey, props to her for that. And uh, I guess whether she wanted to or not, Emmanuel Shariqui did, uh, did some of her own stunts, too, because she dislocated her shoulder during the fall through the trees. You can actually hear it pop on the production track in the theatrical sound mix. Several of the cast and crew were covered in poison ivy throughout the filming of the movie. This was due to chairs being placed in what was first thought to be a group of weeds, only later to discover that it was a patch of the rash-causing plants. This was kind of touched on earlier. Unlike the sequels, which were very much known for this, this film does not have any nudity. There were attempts to include some nude and sex scenes typical for the genre. And when writers like Adam Cooper and Bill Collage and others were working on different versions of the script, they were in there. But uh, the opening, for example, was changed and it had Rich and Haley bathing nude in the river before being killed while having sex on the land. Uh, Francine and Evan having sex in the woods and not near their crashed cars. Jesse's clothes being torn off from her while she's tied to the bed and more similar scenes, which weren't kept at all in the film. Uh, there's only like, like she, I think she tells him to take his pants off in the one scene at the beginning. And that's about all you get. So kind of surprising because this is the type of movie you would expect to have a lot of that. And I guess they learned that lesson. Not even a single titty. Yeah, you'd at least expect the, the brief nudity up at the, the right or left-hand corner of the screen. Yeah, man. I mean, you know... You don't have to get like a porno in your horror movies, but many a movies that were, you know, didn't have a lot of depth of character or, you know, not a ton going for them by having some like super gnarly kills and a little bit of nudity. A lot of those movies are uh, are being watched to this day that are like 40 years old. So it'll go a long way for, for the, the horror audience. Yeah, it really makes up a lot of goodwill, doesn't it? The uh, the lead character, Jesse Berlingame, was actually named after the heroine in the Stephen King novel, Gerald's Game, which was later adapted into a series on Netflix from Mike Flanagan. Despite only being credited for his producing, we talked about Stan Winston already being designed in the make, being involved in the makeup design. He was pivotal 
in the key design of the Mountain Man, particularly Three Finger, who is now considered a postmodern horror icon. This marks the second to last major horror film he has been involved in before his death in 2008 at age 62, and the third slasher he was involved in following uncredited work on Friday the 13th, Part 2 and 3, which we also talk about back in the archives, where he was the core designer on the original Jason Hockey Mask. So go check that out on our long summer at Camp Blood back in the archives, patreon.com slash OG Scare, where we go through the whole goddamn Friday the 13th franchise. The promotion for this film was minimal due to the MPAA. You know, we talked about that earlier. They thought a lot of the trailers were too intense. So it really kind of fucked up the promotional run. So probably could have maybe made a little more money had that not happened. Uh, As was written in the original script, the characters were in their late 20s. However, they were made younger in order to appeal to the younger film audiences. And like we'd mentioned already, they went for a bunch of it guys and gals, like people who were in very hot shows. They were, you know, all considered the the hot young stars and starlets of horror and, and, you know, Hollywood in some cases. Um, interesting that Alan McElroy, we talked about, he wrote the script for this Halloween four. He also wrote the script for the reboot ish wrong turn from 2021. Um, very different storyline wise, but you know, kind of also worth a watch. Uh, when they were in pre-production, McElroy decided to drop the idea of Chris Flynn's victims company being late twenties adults in order to attach the teenage slasher horror crowd. That's, that's who he was aiming at with that decision. So they're like, they're all like 1920. Rob Schmidt said on the commentary that he considered this to be his own personal tribute to movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Hills have eyes. There's a very distinct Hills have eyes influence here. Yeah. It's like if you found the Hills have eyes and you just like ripped its balls completely off. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Would you? So the hillbillies, one eye, saw two and three fingers. What a bunch of rascals. One, two, three. I mean, yes, it's two, th- but one eye saw two, three fingers. Yeah, they thought long and hard about that. Apparently, during one of the last scenes in the movie, Eliza Dushku actually sets actor Julian Richings on fire. Whoops. When, uh, not the only accident, when they were running from the cabin after awakening the mountain man, Desmond Harrington broke his fucking ankle after landing on a log. This made it difficult to shoot some of the scenes after his leg is shot and he has to limp on his right leg. Whoops. Why didn't they just reshoot that and get him shot in his right leg? Yeah, I don't know. So years before Wrong Turn... John Carpenter and writer James Nichols wrote a screenplay. This might have been in the fucking 20 years in between Kill Billy movies. He wrote a screenplay called Prey, P-R-E-Y, which had a plot that was very similar to this, as well as the Hills Have Eyes 2 remake. Uh, Carpenter described his Prey as a mix of Deliverance and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The main characters were three women who would go on a trip through the woods in order to get to some mountain, but then they're captured by an inbred family living in the woods, and the father of the family wants to use them as breeders. At one point in the story of the script, the last surviving woman escapes the inbred family, and just like in this movie, the family members start hunting after her through the woods, but end up being killed by her during the hunt, and father of the family gets captured and put in jail. 
What would have John Carpenter version of this movie like? Gotta wonder. And when I like it, it doesn't say when that was. So you know, what would that have been in between? What kind of era of Carpenter would it have been? Fascinating. Would would still kind of like to see that. As Carpenter has mentioned recently, that he might come back to the director's chair. And finally, the body count. That number is ten. Rich Stoker. Hallie Smith, Evan, Francine, Scott, Carly, State Trooper, One Eye, Sawtooth, and Deputy. And with those numbers, like, let's look at some other numbers and see how much it made. It's the numbers! Numbers of the Beast. All right, Wrong Turn was released on May the 30th, uh, 2003, and it uh, had a budget of $12 million, made about $28 million. so it made a little bit of money. I mean, you would have to think it did in order to it, for it to spawn so many follow-ups. Yeah, and once again, this is like height of DVD mania, so like, I'm sure it made a shit ton of money on DVDs, like... It's really, like, kind of staggering. You can Google and kind of see, like, how the top DVDs of the years, like, you know, starting in the late 90s through, like, the mid-2000s. And a lot of movies were, like, making, like, as much as they made in the theaters off the DVD sales. Like, it was crazy. Yeah, streaming really fucked us. I mean, it really fucked the entertainment industry. It, uh, I mean, you know, I think it kind of fucked us overall, but that's not, that's not an argument for this episode. <laughs> but as the streamers are running into more and more pitfalls and art is being just fucking erased entirely and shit, like, uh, you, you gotta wonder, like, eh, it's, it's kind of like the Napster shit, right? Like, it's like, eh, maybe Metallica was right. Yeah, it's cool. Like, there's some cool movies that like are on HBO that never got physical releases. If they've taken off, they're just gone. Like, unless you like reach out to try to find like, you know, an illegal copy somewhere, if it exists and they're just gone. So yeah. Who would have thought the pirates who were the enemy of money making in the arts are now like the only people preserving shit. It's, it's wild. It's a wild time. But anyway, Talk about the rea- reaction reception to this film. It got mixed reviews from critics. Uh, they praised the premise. They criticized the script. I think that's fair. Uh, they said it had underdeveloped characters and too many horror cliches. It sits at a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. Consensus being it's an unremarkable slasher that fails to distinguish itself from others of that ilk. Uh, Cinema score gave it a C minus. Metacritic gave it a 32, stating generally unfavorable. The Times said that it could have been a half decent cross between a Romero zombie movie, what, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But in the end, the gore is so ridiculously overdone and the script so lame that it undermines all the suspense. I wouldn't say all the suspense, I think, you know. Little little scene where they're hiding out in the uh, the car graveyard, and they one of them has to make it to the car. That actually had some good suspense. That was about the only thing in it. But 
but anyway, they said it's better than any of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels, which is a good thing. Uh, Variety said it was a negative pickup by Fox. And the Austin Chronicle gave it one out of four stars. What, Muji? Whoever thinks this was better than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 needs to be fucking stripped of their ability to make money off being a critic. Those assholes. <laughs> The Austin Chronicle said this was tired stuff when Sleepaway Camp came out in 1983, and it's comatose by now. Wah, get you some milk. Uh, Nev what Pierce. Does this have anything to do with Sleepaway Camp? Like, yeah, what a goddamn random comparison. Same thing with the zombie movies. Like, these yeah, critics are, are to- totally plugged into to horror, man. Yeah, what fucking Romero movies are you watching? Oh, uh, yes. They, this, you know, and they clearly had a lot of respect for the genre here. Uh, even in the early 2000s, you, you get reviews like this. The people don't know how, the, how good they have it now in a world where... You have all of these custom horror reviewers who actually understand the shit you're trying to put out. Yeah, in a world where like mid horror movies are getting like seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and you had to fucking like make a fucking like stone cold classic back in the day to get that type of review. Yep. Well, as we said, it made money, so that in turn spawns a legacy, and it had several several sequels. Wrong Turn Two, which we will be covering later in this season, as it was directed by a favorite of the show and one of probably the only director of a movie we've covered that actually listened to the episode. So we had to cover this one as well. Talking about Joe Lynch and Wrong Turn Two, Dead End from from 07. We'll be covering that later, and that'll actually be our season finale. Uh, but there was also Wrong Turn Three, Left for Dead. Uh, then there were two prequels, Wrong Turn 4, Bloody Beginnings, and Wrong Turn 5, Bloodlines. And then the reboot, Wrong Turn 6, Last Resort, was its original title. But I think, uh, oh no, that, that was actually, the that was a reboot of the story. Okay, then another reboot in October of 2018 was simply called Wrong Turn, which was released in 2021 during the pandemic. Uh, and we mentioned Alan McElroy came back to write that. Uh, and that's out there for streaming as well. And this is a movie that, uh, you know, it, it would have came out straight on DVD. So there was no VHS in this era. VHS was already uh, going by the wayside. So most of these new movies weren't getting VHS releases. Um and it's even hard to find on streaming. Like, you can rent it if you have Apple TV. So, uh, if you would like to own Wrong Turn on home video, you can do it. And Annie is going to tell you how. I am? Yeah, I'm working on adding this shit to the notes. Because, <laughs> give me a second. It should be in there. Yep, so as Muji mentioned multiple times, and so did Dan, uh, DVD Mania, so... Um, it was immediately put on DVD and released October 14th of 2003. Um, so just like five months, not even five months later. Um, and then it was released on Blu-ray in September of 2009. And as Dan mentioned, it, you, you gotta pay to watch this movie. It really feels like one that should be on like, shutter or to be or you know like it's 
It's from 2003. Why isn't it streaming anywhere? Well, we just kind of mentioned the pirates were keeping things alive. You might be able to go to YouTube and not have to pay to rent it. I'm just saying. You might. Wink, wink. All right. Well, if you want to own it, go for it. It's all you. But now, for us, that means it's time for final motherfucking thoughts on Wrong Turn from 2003. I am a big fan of this franchise as a whole. I think uh, this is actually kind of the weakest of the bunch, even though it was probably the most expensive by far. Um, It's got a great cast. They're all very pretty. Uh, the fucking killers are menacing, but like the plot is paper thin. The character development is paper thin and it's just kind of boring. Like, uh, you know, other than when it kicks up, there's nothing that really makes you really want to care about anything that's going on here on a deep level, but it's not a bad movie. Uh, you know, it's definitely one you can throw on with for some atmosphere, but it's just kind of there in a lot of cases. And I think this franchise goes on to find its footing later with kind of the missing elements that are, are not here. But, you know, it didn't make enough money to spawn more of these movies and kind of become synonymous with Kill Billy Horror. I think Wrong Turn was so popular at a time in these straight-to-video movies that uh, if you mentioned, you know, where, where it in the 80s if you got lost in the woods people were making banjo noises talking about deliverance but in the 2000s and in the last 10 20 years you get lost in the woods and people are making hillbilly noises and talking about wrong turn so it had a cultural impact definitely and um you know like i said i'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of the the actresses in this movie in particular and but it's just it's just kind of Kind of flat, just kind of very okay. A very okay movie. Very okay is a great way to put it. Um, I, I found it very hard to give a shit about this movie. Um, everybody sucked. Uh, like, Chris made bad decisions and ended up wrecking his car because he's not a good driver. Um, but he wrecked his car into some fucking idiots who left their car perpendicular to a road because they got a flat tire instead of limping over to the side. So really, it kind of is, it's a balance. Everybody fucking sucks here. Um, everybody sucks. Uh, except, for, except for Eliza's character, who, like, why is she even friends with these people? They suck so much. Um, like I said earlier, she seems to be the only one who gives a shit about making it out alive. Uh, I mean, Chris cares, but um, everybody else is... Uh, whatever. Um, I did appreciate that they straight up shouted out Deliverance in this movie. I don't remember. I think it's the one that's all like that had the quote from that I said at the beginning of the episode. Uh, the the brainiac, uh, know it all guy, and he's like, "What? I mean, did you guys seen Deliverance?" Uh, which was very very early two thousands to be so meta about it. Um, but. Yeah, this is a movie, and it exists, and it's not the worst one I've seen. Well, despite the shade I've been throwing at it all night, um, I actually do like this movie. I think for what it is, it works. If I recall correctly, it's about 85 minutes long, so you're getting into that 70s and 80s vibe. 
you know, where it's not too long, which there's so many horror horror films today that are way too long. But I think once this one picks up, it's got really good pacing. We can say the characters aren't very developed, but I mean, you don't have a lot of time. It is what it is. If you're looking at it as kind of um, an ode to the 70s and early 80s, Kill Billy and Slashers together, I think it works. Uh, it's not one of the great films of all time by far, but, but I think, you know, if you just dig that kind of movie, I think it's fun. I do have to say, I'm not really sure about the Eliza Dushku thing. She has like one look on her face the whole time. Like she got really drunk last night. She looks really sweaty and she just looks very tired the whole time. So I don't get it, but that's just me. Anyway, the movie is actually not that bad. It's a slasher. It's a killbilly. So if, if you like that, it's only 85 minutes long. How about it? She was tired of everybody else's shit. Touche. Yeah, this movie made me sad. Because I remember really liking this movie. Maybe I was more sad about the taste of 20-year-old Muji than I am the movie itself. Because when uh, this movie was announced as being you know, part of the lineup for this season, I was pretty pumped. I was like, yeah, I remember that movie. I like that movie. And it's just a really boring movie. I think that's just the thing is it's like, you know, if you're a huge fan of these like Kill type movies, then, you know, you might be able to get a little something out of it. But there's just nothing that stands out as good. Like the characters are completely underdeveloped and I get it, you know, but I mean, they fucking make some of the characters and some of like the early Friday the 13th movies that everybody gives shit for like not having developed characters. They make all those characters seem like they just did, like, six fucking seasons of a TV show. Like, that's how little we fucking know about any of these people and what the fuck they're about. Um, you know, there's just nothing that, like, stands out. I mean, it's kind of cool when they jump on that tree, you know. It's kind of tough when you watch an hour and 20-minute movie and you're like, and when they jumped out of that fucking watchtower to the tree, that was cool. But, like, it's just, it's not gory. Like, it's, you know, it's not particularly gruesome. It doesn't feel dangerous. It feels like, I get it. I get that it's an ode to, like, you know, 70s, you know, slashers and, like, Killbilly movies. But it's, like, you took, like, all of, like, the like a bar of soap and, like, wiped, like, all of the dirt and grime, you know, and cleaned everything that made those movies good off of them. And then you just left us with this, like kind of completely manufactured like it seems like what if a rich guy at a movie studio like you know his idea of one of those movies and that's what we got so don't love it but that's okay we got a thumbs up a thumbs down and two thumbs in the middle it seems so definitely uh some mixed feelings about wrong turn through the seeking human victims cast we'll see what the Sequel holds for us later in the season, but that's going to do it for this week's episode of the program. Of course, we'll be back next week as we start warming up your Halloween season. Uh, still doing Killbillies, but we got some good ones coming up next week. A sequel to the film that kicked this season off in 1964. Coming all the way back for a sequel in 2005, starring the great Robert England, as well as another horror icon in Lynn Shay. I'm talking about 2001 Maniacs from 2005, 
next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims.